COVID issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 250 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and it is fair to say I will not be a dancer in a music video anytime soon. Now I know what this is a reference to but obviously most people won't. Which one did you do Mickey? I went to a music video dance class. We got to learn a dance routine to Whitney Houston's Queen of the Night which was very exciting. It was it was brilliant to have a bit of Whitney but Oh my goodness, Jen! You know this. We went to one together a couple of years ago. We did. They were so fast. <laughs> they are so fast. And at one point, I had to do a knee drop, and I've got like a massive egg on my knee now because I'm 46. What the fuck am I thinking? This isn't great for a podcast, but is there quite a lot of like head, this kind of thing in Queen of the Night? Yeah, the teacher looked amazing. I looked like I was fitting. It just wasn't. <laughs> She Everything she did looked really sexy and I just looked awkward. Just really awkward. Apart from the clicks. I was good at the clicks. I've actually done a dance like a video class. On a hen well, party. If you can believe it. Incredible. What did you dance no, to? No, it was like a, a like a woman's festival thing and it was for children. And we danced, learnt to dance like Beyonce and the five-year-old I was with got it within seconds. And I was absolutely terrible we learnt the bit and I was like, all right, okay, so we just repeat this thing over and over and over. And then they were like, now, now this is move two. Yeah. And you were like, what? I was shit. At one point she taught us the steps for the legs and she was like this and she went through it and we practised it and we practised it several times and then she went, and for the arms? And I actually said out loud, oh my God, <laughs> I can't do two things at once. The thing is, because they teach you like the beginning, because I've done a few of these, they teach you like the beginning bit which is always like a bit more like, oh, we're easing into it, we're easing into it. And then it goes nuts. But also like they do it at like, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight. And then it's like, now we'll do it at the actual speed that it actually happens at. And then it's like, what the motherfucking fuck? This is the worst thing in the world. It's fun though, because it's absolutely hilarious. And the reason I have a great time doing it isn't because... I look amazing or I can come home and and do that for people to be entertained. It is because I do not take myself seriously. Half of the women there very much took themselves seriously, which just made it funner for me because they were all so shit. (laughs) I was like, this is great. Well, that kind of leads into my fact. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I think people should be happy in their holiday photographs. Did you see a lot of duck face on your holidays? Oh my God, not just duck face. So I've been to Istanbul. Oh my goodness. Honestly, the amount of people, which was almost all of them, in fact, that were taking what appeared to be like five minutes worth of photographs Mm. in a number of really contrived poses, most of which were looking off into the middle distance, (laughs) but some of which was I've never seen before, fake walking, like holding hands and pretending to be walking. (laughs) There was quite a lot of that. And uh, really pinched faces. And everyone just looked really miserable. And it made me really sad. It's just like the Instagramification of the holiday experience. And I just thought it was terrible. And then I put something on Twitter about it. And uh, everybody sent me a photograph that had been circulating in my absence from Twitter of some people posing in front of Auschwitz. Yeah. So I suppose I saw the less horrifying amount of it. But I was still pretty horrified by what I saw. Saw a lot of people doing happy selfies oh look where i am selfies at the twin towers museum it's a time and a place guys that's not it no that's neither but like i say when you're standing outside you know something cool in istanbul 
Like, just smile. Just just literally smile. Please tell me you started going up to people going, come on, love, give us a smile, it might never happen. <laughs> you know, look like you're enjoying your holiday. They might not be enjoying the holiday. No, they might be not. having a terrible time. <laughs> well... On a completely different topic. This did actually happen the week before last, but I've been holding it back for you, Hannah. <laughs> last week, I met a hairless cat. Not a euphemism. I've met one. They're weird, aren't they? I loved it. Oh, they're cute. I fucking they're loved it. It was great. It felt like a chamois leather. <laughs> really good for getting your phone screen clean. Just Yep. Didn't know the person in question even had a cat, and out it jumped, and I was like, what the fuck is this? And it was great. And he sat on my lap and he purred and I was like, this is what a cat is supposed to do. I'm here for it. I loved it. I went for a drink with my friend Nicola on uh, Thursday night. I told her about this cat about two hours in to our meeting and she was like, what the fuck? I can't believe you didn't open with that. Why is it taking you two hours to tell me about this? I loved it. They're lovely. I always worry for them, though. I feel like that they get, they do feel the cold a lot more. They have to have blankets and stuff. They demand a lot of extra care to your standard fur-covered cat. And even more than your long-haired cat, they demand a lot of extra attention. Yeah. I like to get involved with a cat. If I'm giving a cat a scruffle, that cat is going to fucking know about it. I'm going to have a lovely time. It's going to have a lovely time. I'm going to have a hairy hand by the end of it. Again, not a euphemism. But uh, you can't <laughs> you can't get as involved with a hairless cat. I don't know. They look really fucked off all the time as well. Oh. Well, what if someone, like, shaved all your body hair off, Hannah? Well, exactly. <laughs> I'd be grateful. Exactly. Thanks. Save me a job. <laughs> Later on, I chat with a glorious Ema Kenny about true crime podcasts, Karen Pirry and Series 2 of The Curse, which starts on Channel 4 on April the 27th at 10pm. I'm talking to Jo Cheatham about her role in the No More Page 3 campaign, her new book, Killjoy, and why she hates fun. But she's a bloody feminist, isn't Fuck she? Fucking hell. In Jenny Off the Blocks, it's one step forward and... Oh, dear. And in Rated or Dated, I am music now, Mick is rhythm now, and Jen can really have it all as flash dance, flash dances <laughs> right through our lives. What a feeling. What a feeling. But first, won't somebody think of the convenient T-shirt wearers? It's time for the Bush oh, Telegraph. Houston. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, wearing good news for the Met Police, but bad news for um the not police. It turns out the Met aren't the worst <laughs> when it comes to sexual misconduct and racism claims. Who are the contenders, Mick? Talk us through it. Essex, Suffolk, Staffordshire. Slow clap for those three. Oh, I can't. Jen, Absolute I just don't. Lads. I don't have it in me to talk anymore about it. It's just so depressing. It really is. Well, in further depressing news, because it is the news. Mick, you might have read last week that the International Monetary Fund has predicted that the UK will be one of the worst performing major economies in the world this year. Another slow hand clap there, then. Well done. <laughs> well done, us. It's not good news, is it? No. What's driving this hideous downturn of a once powerful nation, I hear you ask? <laughs> Maybe it was Brexit. It has, after all, had a profound impact on the availability of cucumbers and, let's face it, quite a bit else. Mm -hmm. If I were being generous, I might add that B, the pandemic and gross mismanagement of public finances throughout that time possibly didn't help. Probably not. Maybe it's C, Lizzie 49 Days Truss and her Chancellor quasi third time lucky Quarteng's budget, which immediately crashed the economy and made life instantly worse for everyone. Although, 
if you've been paying attention, you'll see Liz has some of her own thoughts on this, according to a speech she made in the US last week. Lads, it's wokery gone mad. Of course it is. Not being a total bastard is bringing the economy down. (laughs) You heard it from Liz first. In the words of Shaggy, it wasn't her. Incidentally... I would have about as much confidence in Shaggy running our economy as I do any member of the current cabinet. When can I vote for him? I I would like to. (laughs) In the absence of Shaggy's great mind, Rishi Sunak has some thoughts. Absolutely didn't vote for him. No one did. It's an anti-maths mindset, Mick. Oh, right. That's right. Not being able to calculate the angle of a ladder against a wall or the precise dimensions required for a display box for Sanjeev's shell. Two actual examples from my maths GCSE. That's hindering economic growth in the UK, says the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, former Chancellor. The one who's overseen, checks notes, or three years of this (laughs) economic dumbfuckery. Anyway... This is part of his justification for a previously announced ambition to make all school pupils study maths until the age of 18, and his soon-to-be-announced review of the subject in England. At the time of writing this, details of his forthcoming speech had been leaked to media outlets, as is customary. (laughs) Of course. And apparently he will tell an audience on Monday that being bad at maths has become socially acceptable. That's a quote. Which I think is a really weird <laughs> choice of words. In it? <laughs> like smoking or not cleaning up your dog shits. <laughs> Thinking about things in a different way is socially acceptable. Stop the fucking press, Rishi. Now look, I am not good at maths. Full disclosure, I never have been. I was not interested in Sanjeev's box. Rude. And it doesn't appear to have <laughs> held me back too much. What is holding me and almost everyone in the country back quite considerably at the moment, as well as A, B and C above, is a government that routinely funnels money towards people who don't need it and an increasingly deregulated utility sector. I mean, for fuck's sake, is this the best you guys have got? It's kind of laughable, isn't it, that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak thinks, I mean, has the brass cojones to tell anyone that they're not very good at anything. I'm like, may have a little look at outside the window at what's been happening. And also, this made me laugh. Like, the hollow laughter that has become my regular go-to giggle now. Gillian Keegan, I don't know if you know that is, she is the Education Secretary, has, mm. following this leak, this recent leak about Sunak's speech, admitted that we don't actually have enough maths teachers to yeah. follow through on this plan. Yeah. So your question, is this the best you guys have got? I'm going to take yes, but we're all fucked, Jen. Sad times. <laughs> Sad times. The times we're in, Jen, the times we're in, it mm. is 2023. And yet it seems the golly doll discourse is back again. Why am I even talking about this in to reiterate 2023? Well, just this month, a pub in Essex had its collection of of golly dolls confiscated, after which they were promptly replaced with a new collection by landlady Bernice Riley, who refuses to accept that the dolls are racist, that she is racist, or that her husband Christopher Riley is racist. Christopher Riley, whose Facebook posts read like Racism 101 (laughs) and include the time he uploaded a picture of golly dolls hanging from his bar with the comment... They used to hang them in Mississippi years ago. I mean, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and makes clearly racist comments like a duck, 
In a frankly hilarious interview with The Guardian, Benice Riley also confirmed that her husband had been photographed in a T-shirt from the far-right group Britain First. She said, I don't think Chris is a supporter of Britain First. He was just wearing that shirt because it was convenient at the time. (laughs) I mean, what, were all his other racist T-shirts in the wash? What's happening there? Seriously, the interview that Bernice Riley gave to The Guardian is so, so batshit. I genuinely considered just reading it out word for word as my news story. But the story has since expanded. Lucky now, here's Petronella Wyatt, a woman mostly famous for boffing Boris Johnson. No judgment. So much judgment. (laughs) So much judgment, Jen. So much. With a column in The Telegraph. And her column, I'm sure you'll agree, is bound to be considered and considerate. And they'll come for our teddy bears next, I tell you. Oh, oh, I see, Petronella. Uh, No. I am fairly confident that Wyatt's assertion that the modern left hates Teddy Roosevelt for building the Panama Canal. Sorry, what? When did you last have a chat about that in your politics group, Jen? Uh Uh-uh. Is hyperbolic nonsense. And also that the teddy bear, or indeed Teddy's bear, as it was originally, was actually meant to make us side with the bear anyway. To be totally fair, I do get why people of a certain age who aren't racist might defend gollies. They have neutral memories of them as part of their own youth, as as do I, although I look back on that now and I absolutely wince because we learn, right? We we progress mm. and surely, surely no one is beyond understanding why they might be seen as racist and why displaying them hanging from nooses is definitely racist. Correct response. I won't use that word because I've been told not to, said Bernice Riley, about the W word. But I, I don't find that offensive. <laughs> I mean, I realise I haven't mentioned this so far, but Bernice and Christopher Riley are white. Perhaps they shouldn't be involved in the what's offensive decision process here. I don't know. I don't know. I do know. And they shouldn't. I also realise it's very easy to be knee jerk about this, not least because it's so very easy to take the piss out of Benice and Christopher Riley being, to my mind, awful human beings. I mean, Benice has very kindly written the jokes herself. But this comes in a week where a Tory councillor was reportedly recorded saying all white men should have a black slave. In a week where it was revealed that black girls are three times more likely to undergo an invasive strip search by Met Police than white girls. In a week where it's reported three police forces, Essex, Suffolk and Staffordshire, had, by proportion, more officers under investigation due to allegations of racism than the Met. The Met, Mm. just in case you've forgotten, weren't doing brilliantly on this score. No. No one has been arrested in connection with the hate crime allegation against the Rileys, and there's been a lot of noise that it's not illegal to display golly dolls. But it it could be, actually. Under the Crime and Disorder Act 1998, behaviour that is racially aggravated is an offence if at the time, quote, the offender demonstrates towards the victim hostility based on the victim's membership or presumed membership of a racial or religious group. I want to tell the story quickly about the time I was in the Isle of Wight. This is about 14 years ago, to be fair. They had golly dolls absolutely 
everywhere on the Isle mm. of Wight. Like we were all there, and we were just like, "What the fuck is this? This is crazy." I've not seen one of these since like I was about eight years old, basically. Because they were like I I remember the Robertson Jam tokens that you yeah. could collect yeah, and yeah. all of that stuff. They were like very mainstream things, even like within my living memory. But obviously, have not been for a long time. So we were like, this is absolutely bonkers. And then we were in a gift shop where they were selling them for whatever. And a man picks one of them up and says to his wife, I won't use the word he said, because obviously (laughs) it's racist. He says, look, it's a gully to his wife. And his wife goes, you're not to call it that anymore. You're to call it a cuddly tie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like... Was her heart in the right place? Was she trying? I don't know. I think so. I, I think, think so. I think so. I think she hadn't understood that there's like it's not just the name. That oh is... wait, did did they buy it? Because that would be the answer. Oh, I don't know about that. I was too busy pissing myself about the exchange. And <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Mick, would you like some good news? More than I can even express, Jen. Please. Okay. So. I was on the hunt for some good news this morning and positive.news is generally one of my first ports of call if there isn't anything obvious that's come up in the last week. Because, you know, it can be slim picking sometimes, the yeah, good news section. pretty much every week. <laughs> I came across the headline, Why are scientists creating a bank for human poo? Okay, <laughs> I thought to myself, I'll bite. Don't bite the human poo, Jen, that's horrific. <sighs> So the article opens thus. We've all encountered the horror. <laughs> We've all encountered the horror of a frost encrusted mystery box buried deep in the freezer. <laughs> Spare a thought then for microbiologist Adrian Egley. At which point I'm thinking, who the fuck have you been living with? <laughs> Jen, you know, we've chatted before about intrusive thoughts and I have crazy intrusive thoughts and kind of mm. false memories and a real yeah. recurring one. And they feel so real when it happens is that I have hidden a human leg in a freezer. So when you say frost encrusted mystery box, to me, could be a human leg. At least it wasn't a human shit, Mickey. <laughs> like... I think mine's worse. <laughs> Which is the implication... <laughs> Or the inference that I took from this article, given the headline. Mm, Yeah, that's true. It's all right, guys. Eggly's deep freeze contains poo. The article continues, instead of last week's leftovers. So, like, I thought that they meant that we all know the feeling of, like, seeing a box in the freezer and, like, thinking, oh, no, there's a shit (laughs) Oh, is it poo or is it yesterday's Chinese leftovers? Phew. Fully relieved to hear about Eggly's turd-filled freezer... Glad it's not happening, like, just in most people's Yeah, in like, flat shares. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And even better, there is a point to it all. That does make it better. (laughs) It does make it better. Which is that he's building a catalogue of microbes from our guts to guard against a decline in microbial diversity. Eggly currently has more than 3,000 stool samples Wowzers. and his pilot is working to find the best way to store, thaw and revive microbial cultures to help counteract things like antibiotic reliance and to protect our physical and mental health. Lovely stuff. 
How good for your mental health is it having 300 poos in your freezer? <laughs> 3,000, Mickey. Sorry, 3,000 poos in your... I, I was just thinking of how many I could fit in my freezer, Jen, if it was going to cheer me up. <laughs> I don't think they're like in his kitchen, okay. I hope. Does he want us to send him any? Is he? I mean, is he asking for... Is he making requests? There's no request for it in the article that I read. It does say that most of these samples are from Switzerland... He does have a couple from other places, but they are mostly from Switzerland and he would like to populate the um, catalogue with samples from all over the world. So maybe. Sounds like an invitation uh, to me. So send me that address. (laughs) I've got loads of it. Loads of it. (laughs) Do you think he was like, as a kid, he he was really into his Panini sticker album and he's like, I just like collecting things. What can I collect? (laughs) Hannah's going to have a horrible time when she listens to this. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I ask, dutiful housewives, dutiful housewives, wherefore aren't thou, dutiful housewives? And, you know, you might think I'm shooting sexist fish in a sexist barrel this week as I look at the following headline from, you guessed it, the Daily Mail's female section. And yeah, I know what I'm about to read to you sounds like an extended sentence, but it is genuinely the headline. I'll shout the word that's capitalised for emphasis, obs. How the rise of women has triggered the downfall of Tupperware. (laughs) Even the Queen liked their little plastic pots, but the firm is teetering on the brink of collapse because dutiful housewives no longer exist. That's a headline and a half, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like seven headlines. (laughs) I mean, it's a simple fuck off, really, isn't it, in response? Tupperware's on its hold because it's overpriced, not as eco-friendly as, say, wax paper or IKEA's glass versions, out of touch with the market and only available on its own website. True story. And actually, that's pretty much what the article says. (laughs) Indeed, author Lindsay Nicholson, former editor of Good Housekeeping, has written a thoughtful history of an intrinsically female product and about how her nostalgia for it and the pin money it brought so many women doesn't trump her delight that, quote, women no longer need a neat pile of colourful plastic containers to justify our place outside the kitchen. Clearly, a Daily Mail sub has decided such a celebration of working women and female progression is absolutely not for the Daily Mail and come up with that baiting headline. And, you know, it's worked. I have seen a lot, a lot of reaction to the headline rather than the article itself. And in all honesty, it was literally as I sat down to write this, I noticed that wasn't what I'd assumed. So yes, I am shooting sexist fish in a sexist barrel, but Lindsay Nicholson is not one of those fish and she's been done a classic Daily Mail dirty. Although I am sure she is aware of the barrel she chose to jump in. I've got two questions here. Yeah. Number one, why did the Daily Mail commission that article if it like was a thoughtful and considered piece about the many, many reasons that it gone gone tits up for them? And two, have they never heard of packed lunches? Like people like all of those dutiful housewives who've gone to work, they need a packed lunch. What are they gonna put their packed lunches in? Arguably, with more people going to work, there's actually more need for Tupperware. Certainly, or or similar um there's more need for receptacles. Receptacles. For That's the word I was looking for. But if anyone does have any spare Tupperware, they should send it over to microbiologist Adrian Egley <laughs> <laughs> for his vast collection of poo.
Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by Joe Cheatham, one of the women behind the No More Page 3 campaign and author of new book Killjoy, which is part memoir and part campaign history. Thank you very much for joining us, Joe. Well, thanks very much for having me. I mean, the first and the most important question is, of course, why do you hate fun? <laughs> because I'm a killjoy, obviously. I can't take a joke. You're a feminist. You can't take a joke. <laughs> I've been listening to some of the interviews you've done over the last month because the book came out at the start of March. We're now at the start of April. And also having read your book, knowing that there was a time when you were absolutely shitting yourself at the thought of ever talking to the media, it does seem that you are a different woman. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's nice. I'm presuming you're meaning I, I'm a different woman in a good way. I'm taking that. You've thrown the imposter syndrome right out of the window. Well, I don't think I have. That's the thing. If I come across like I'm not bothered, you know, and I'm completely calm and fine about doing interviews and stuff, that's not true at all. At all. When I first started having to do these interviews, because, of course, the campaign ended in 2015. We're now, who knows what year is it? What year is it? 2020? I don't know. It's a long time. Mm. That was a long time to be out of the routine of having to do media stuff, you know. And I was in a total state. Quite honestly, I had to drink a lot of tequila before I did anything at any point. Really? Today, I've just got coffee. I've got coffee. <laughs> so <laughs> so that is some kind of development, a positive yeah. development, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, I found it really intimidating having to do any kind of interview or media stuff. Every time I was asked if I wanted to give a talk or speak at something, my immediate thought would be, oh, the person that they wanted must have died and everybody else that they had as a backup is at the funeral so they're asking they're asking me and I I still feel that way I mean I'm presuming that's what happened with you I do get the imposter syndrome bit because I mean I did stand-up comedy and yet still was not confident at all it was all this just incredibly crafted facade doing stand-up helped with the with the the imposter syndrome it did I think like these people are actually laughing at me, it appears, rather than laughing at something else that's coming. Perhaps someone fell over at the bar at exactly the same time I cracked <laughs> that joke. Yeah, for a long time. And I used to go out to interview people and be nervous. It's like a spider. They are way more nervous than you are at this point. They're more scared of you than you are of them. But oh, even as that's a journalist, interesting. I'd be nervous. I still, it's part of imposter syndrome, isn't it? That you think that everybody else is perfectly cool mm. and calm. And that you're the only one who's losing it completely. Yeah. So that's good to know. We do both come from a working class background, which I think really helps with the imposter syndrome, doesn't it? Oh, it really helps. The idea that everybody else knows each other and like went to school together, which actually in some cases is true. Yeah, they they do. Yeah. (laughs) But looking at the No More Page 3 campaign, it was a very working class campaign and I think that's important to mention not just because it's it's in my wheelhouse it's my hobby horse but also because I think activism particularly feminist activism people would disregard it as middle class women with nothing else to do and that certainly wasn't the case with you lot was it? It wasn't the case at all and weirdly that was sort of thrown at us as an insult all the way through which is a weird insult because there's worse things you can be called than a middle-class woman. Why shouldn't we middle-class women have opinions on 
the media and how women are represented in it. But yeah, it was all the time we were called sort of moaning, middle class busybodies, wheat germ eaters, people who uh, eat hummus and go on holiday to fancy Greek islands and have got no idea about the real people who read Mm. the sun. So we have no business, you know, talking about it, which firstly is a ridiculous thing to say anyway. Everybody has a right to comment on the media that we're confronted with every single day. But also the reason that most of the people who were part of the campaign were interested in the issue is because we grew up with the sun in our homes. You know, because for most of us, members of our family, male members of our family, Mm -hmm. were sun readers. That's interesting because my dad very working class but had that thing that some working class particularly men have in which he was a raging cultural snob and he would not have a red top in our house and although other members of my family did read red tops they generally read the mirror I never encountered page three until I went to a friend's house when I was about 11 and her stepdad was reading it and I just remember thinking well, I just remember being embarrassed. So actually, for a long time, it, it kind of passed me by. And then when your campaign started, I thought, they still do that, don't they? That's that's insane that they still do it. It's so weird. When I talk to people, they can't believe that page three only ended in 2015. Mm. You know, they think it ended in the 80s or the early 90s, but it was still going less than 10 years ago. And it is kind of amazing to consider that. I mean, the Mirror had a page three for a while, didn't it? Mm. A lot of the other tabloids did as well, but the Sun really kept it going. They really, really pushed on with page three for a long time. This was very much pitched by the Sun as you against page three girls. And that was something you couldn't make clear enough and get people persistently misunderstood, didn't they? Well, it was an easy thing for them to do, really. If they can shift the issue to it being a women's issue, you know, and it's women against women, then they can kind of take a back seat and pretend it's nothing to do with them at all when they're the editors, you know, who have been printing page three for 40 years. But, of course, for us, it wasn't about that at all. We completely, completely agreed with any job choice that any woman wants to do. It was just we didn't want this in what was supposed to be, at the time, the UK's biggest selling family newspaper. Mm. You know, and you've got all of these clothed men, you know, all the pictures of the politicians and the football players. And then you've got this usually very, very young, very, you know, a very specific look that the model would have. On the third page of the paper, it was always the biggest image of a woman. And it was just so obvious that you know it sent such a clear message about what men's roles are and what women's roles are and where your value lies as a woman it was the editorial decision that we were against not the actual career choice of being a glamour model at all on a couple of occasions we've had fiona mckenzie who founded the we can't consent to this campaign and the first time she was on mickey said to her you know, have you got some background in this, you know, either legally or, you know, someone you know has been through this? And she said the classic words, oh, no, I'm just a random angry woman. And (laughs) it's become our sort of our go-to. That was how you got involved in that sense, wasn't it? Completely. I had no experience in campaigning. I wasn't like looking for a cause to get behind or anything like that at all. Not in the least. I was the most unlikely person to get involved in a campaign that I can think of. But it was just... 
a series of events. Just there was a ton of street harassment at the time. I was at a university in London. I felt completely out of place. You know, I'd moved from Rotherham to London and it was the first time I'd seen the real sort of class divide in your face. You know, the differences between me and the other students. Mm. It was such a gulf. And I just felt lonely and angry and it felt like any time I left the house I was getting abuse hurled at me and I was really 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 furious and then I just yeah I read an article about the campaign and something just kind of clicked in my head there was a picture of Lucianne Holmes who's a woman who set up the campaign and she was just stood wearing a normal page three t-shirt in the middle of the street and I thought I would never dare do that you know I wouldn't dare walk down my own street wearing that kind of thing because I was sort of you know, hiding myself under the layers of coats and scarves. And to be able to actually have that statement and to walk down the street and to not care, I thought, I want what she's got, basically. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think we all do. Again, in reading it, it did teach me that the statement, if you want a job doing properly, ask a very busy woman, is really correct. Because you all have so much stuff. There are bits where where you're relaying Facebook messages where someone says, can someone do this? And, you know, I'm at work, I've got the kids, I'm doing this. It is a a staggering achievement given that you were all busy achieving other things on the side. It's so funny because people, you know, we get emails from journalists, for example, and they say, oh, we'd like to do an interview, can we come to your office? (laughs) It's like, office? We think we've got an office. And, you know, we were sort of just doing everything via social media. Uh, homes which were scattered across the country we were from different parts of the UK and we never even seemed to really even have a pair of trousers on to be honest you know you're sort of like half dressed in the morning brushing your teeth and answering emails at the same time there was nothing professional about it whatsoever Mm. we didn't have any kind of plan or experience or media training or any of that we were making it up as we went along and it's a miracle really that anything came of it it really is a miracle (laughs) because we didn't know what we were doing at all Yeah, this is around the time that we started Standard Issue. And actually, when we were an online magazine, Sarah Pascoe wrote a great piece for us about the No More Page 3 campaign in which she suggested that if your campaign didn't work, then the only way forward was that uh, Page 3 should become like jury service in (laughs) in that women would be called up and they would have to go and be on Page 3 because she said there would be nothing like 40 or 50-year-old tits to make men say, please stop putting tits in the paper. Firstly, I think that's an excellent idea, especially if that would have included men as well. So one day you've got a 70-year-old lorry driver, you know, yeah. or the next day you've got a woman who's just given birth to triplets. That would have been a great thing to do. But, yeah, it, I mean, until the law changed in 2003, the models were frequently 16, you know, and they only raised the, the age to 18 because they legally had to do it. And so often the models were, you know, wearing their school uniforms and were 16 years old. I mean, when you really think about it, that's pretty creepy, isn't it? It's a pretty Absolutely. creepy Yeah. When I was reading, one of the things that struck me is how long ago it all seems, even though it's really quite recent. I mean, we're not even talking about, well, basically 10 years ago. And some of that's to do with the fact it feels like the 1970s when you're talking about what it's doing. But some of it's to do with the way that the world has changed in the interim. Obviously, Me Too has changed a lot, but also Twitter's a different place than it was. We're also post-Brexit, so conversations are a lot more tense and difficult. And also, the newspaper industry is struggling even more than it was then. So I wonder if you think that 
you could have achieved this now? No, not at all. I don't think it's a totally different world. I don't know how you'd even go about running this kind of campaign now. I really don't. It was so of its time. Mm. And it's exactly as you said, you know, it's really a time when even online feminism, you know, online feminist causes were suddenly flourishing everywhere. You know, you've got the Everyday Sexism Project and you've got the Hollaback campaign. Was going. There were so many things that all seemed to happen at the same time. And it just seemed like, yeah, just like this perfect time for all of that to happen. And now... I don't know. It, it's everything's so different, isn't it? I mean, back when we were running the campaign, it was all basically Facebook and Twitter. Mm. We didn't ever even use Instagram, really. I mean, now it's just a different landscape. Everything's totally changed, hasn't it? Yeah, I think the standard of conversation about anything has deteriorated enormously. But in in standard of conversation about contentious if, issues, yeah, I mean, you got a lot of abuse. What is the best way to deal with a troll? It's awful. So for us, I mean, we had this group of us. So if we took it in turns to handle social media, so we'd do, you know, half a day at a time, or if we were really busy, just an hour at a time and swap over. So if one of us was really get, getting bombarded with trolls, somebody would kind of swoop in and, and cover for you. So we had this support network that most people don't have, you know, if you're on your own. But the only way we could really deal with it, I think, was by using humour, really, and just kind of laughing it off because it's so incredibly pathetic to think that these losers, you know, are sat at home so triggered by what we're doing that they've got to type in, tell us that we look like a bag of crap, and then, you know make a duplicate profile and tell us from a different, like all day. They have nothing better to do. And it's so sad. But of course, if it's really serious abuse, then obviously, you know, you can tell the police, you can take the legal course of action. But for us, it was just, it was constant. We were getting trolled every minute of the day. Yeah. So we just learned really just to deal with it by taking the mickey out of it. Those are the days that everyone said, oh, do you remember when Twitter was lovely? And you're like, (laughs) really? (laughs) So if we've got anyone listening who wants to start a campaign, how would you advise them to go about it? What do you think the secret of your success was? It's funny because I think the secret to our success is that we didn't try to start a campaign. Right. (laughs) isn't very helpful for people who do want to start a campaign I mean obviously Lucy did she started this on her own she set up a petition because she bought the sun during the Olympics and couldn't believe that the biggest image of a woman in the paper was page three bigger than the picture of Jessica Ennis and you know everybody just won the gold medals it was unbelievable so Lucy started it but again without this kind of master plan of it being a giant campaign she just wanted to set up a petition to see if there were other people who felt the way she did. And everything that happened, happened really by mistake. But for me, if I was going to start anything now, I just wouldn't dream of doing it on my own. That would be the only (laughs) piece of advice that I could give, would be to make sure that you've got backup, because it's hard and it's exhausting. And as you said, there's a lot of trolls and a lot of very unpleasant people online who want to tell you you know Mm. lots of love every day and I just think for me the most important thing about the campaign was the people it was the friendships that we made and this incredible support network and that's 
what got us through it. And I think that's probably what ultimately made the campaign successful. That when one of us would be completely exhausted and demoralised and burnt out with it, somebody else would have sort of fresh enthusiasm and they would take over for a bit. It's, It's not having to do it all on your own, I think. Yeah, yeah, that is good advice. A couple of years ago, I went to a Woman of the World festival thing. There was one in Cambridge, which is where I live. It wasn't the big London one. And a friend of mine came and she couldn't get childcare, so we had a little girl with us. There was a nursery, a free nursery, because it's the Women of the World Festival, so of course there's a free nursery. And so uh, when we went to collect her, she came out, she was about, say, maybe four, and she had a, a paper crown that she'd made herself that said, maybe she was a bit older because she could write, because it said her name and then princess on it. And then she was wearing right. a No More Page 3 t <laughs> And we were like, what a glorious example of the, the, the messages that just bombard yeah. young girls. How do you feel about young girls now? Would you be a young girl now? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I don't know, genuinely, I don't know how how people are surviving growing up in this world. Mm. I really don't. That sounds very grim and dramatic, but... I mean, my sister's got teenage daughters and the pressure, not only to sort of look a certain way, but to be online, to have that kind of online presence all mm. the time, you know, to have the Instagram accounts and to produce all of this content all the time. Yeah. I found it terrifying. And that's without considering, you know, all of the trolls and all of the harm that mm. can come to young people on these platforms but just the responsibility I feel like the second you give a teenager like a young teenager a phone you're kind of giving them a job yeah. do you know what I mean you're, yeah. you're not free to just play anymore you've got to be on this you've got to be replying to things you've got to be doing things and I see them and I just feel so much empathy and I'm so grateful that I grew up you know, I didn't have a phone till I was 20. Yeah. We didn't have internet at home. You know, did all of my A-level papers and everything with a pencil on a piece of paper. I'm just so glad. And I I just don't, I genuinely don't know how young people are managing to survive. You obviously, you seem like quite a natural writer. Have you got plans to write anything else? I have. Um, I've been writing since, I don't know, how old are you when you learn how to write? I don't know. Five? Six? Yeah. Um, I, like I feel embarrassed I've said six. I was going to say eight. I'm going to say eight. <laughs> well, we didn't have the sun in our house, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I was a small starter. Yeah, I've written pretty much every day since then. And all I've ever wanted to do is write, you know. So, yeah, I'm working on a novel. And I'm hoping that I'll just carry on just writing stuff. What about campaigning? Do you feel like you've you've done your bit? You can retire. You know, you fought your war. You can go to the the equivalent, the feminist equivalent of the Chelsea pensioners. You know what? We need to set that up. <laughs> yeah. <Can> we... <laughs> That's what I want. I do worry about what will become of me when I'm sort of 85. Yeah. So I think that's the way forward. Let's do that. Now, honestly, I don't know. Because, like I said, the way it happened with the campaign, it was by mistake. And I'm still furious about most things most of the time. So at any point, who knows? Something could snap. Yeah, <laughs> it could happen but I don't have immediate plans I'm not sat there with a spreadsheet thinking you know what can I be offended by today yeah. watch this space yes Joe, this has been an absolute pleasure Killjoy in all good bookshops now yes it is thanks <laughs> it's been lovely talking to you <laughs>
Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by actor, screenwriter and showrunner Ema Kenny. Ema, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. First of all, though, congratulations on making a tiny human. Oh, thank you. Um, I've finally got about an hour to myself, so thank you for having me on this podcast so I can push him out of the house and say, leave me alone, I need to do something for me. <laughs> Thanks for using your spare time to chat to us, very appreciate it. Uh, how are you doing? Are you getting some sleep? It's ups and downs, as as I imagine everyone's experience of this time is. He's 12 weeks, so, you know, it's 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 been a roller coaster of um, emotions and <laughs> sort of, yeah, amazing magical moments, and then you know, extremely uh, delirious, sleepless uh-huh. freakouts. Um, and I'm currently feeling a little bit like I'm hanging off the edge of a cliff with my fingernails because I'm starting to go back to work a bit. You know, I'm talking to you and kind of venturing back out to the world, and um, I feel a bit like my brain has been cut in half, and half of it is is sort of being held in a sticky little mitts. So if I say anything that just sounds mental, that's my caveat. <laughs> It's an excellent caveat. It must be really strange, actually, because obviously your life is so like just there and so in your face in all of the glorious mess that comes with being a new mum. But you're talking about stuff in the can ages ago for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember (laughs) how the before times, you know, to talk about them because pregnancy feels a long time ago and work from before feels a long time ago. But I've I've got to so. So I will. <laughs> Good. Right. Thank you. A second <laughs> congratulations. Karen Perry. Oh, man, I love that series so hard. Who knew a hugely underestimated woman proving the bigwigs wrong would resonate so much? <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you liked it. Oh, I loved it. Just for listeners who haven't watched it, like one, what the fuck are you doing? Stop listening, go and watch it. Two, you <laughs> adapted the Val McDermott, total goddess, bestseller, yeah. The Distant Echo. <laughs> How did that come about? I was writing on another show, um, a Sky show called Save Me, uh, Save Me 2, the series, second series, which was uh, uh, loved working on. Um, and the company that made that, they had the rights to Val's book. I think they felt that because the lead character, as you say, is a young, underestimated woman in a man's world, they wanted to see if I liked it being a sort of young, <laughs> maybe underestimated woman in a man's world. Although I suppose they were actually, you know, kind of estimating, estimating me about right. <laughs> so uh, uh, they, they sent it to me and um, I read it and I'd heard a lot about Val. Um, my sister worships her because she's a big crime fan. And I'd actually read Val's book about forensics, which is a non-fiction book, but it's really good. And so I took it on and um, and it, about four years later, it, it, it hit the screens on ITV last year. It absolutely did. It smashed the screens. It was amazing. <laughs> did oh. you know when you were adapting it that you were going to write yourself apart? <laughs> you know, no, I kind of can't think like that. Otherwise, I would, I think you'd end up writing either more for yourself or like, a, like better lines and you have to let it, you have to let the story <laughs> happen as it is. But then when we were casting it and I met Lauren and me and Lauren, I think our sense of humour has really worked together. And I just kind of felt like, hmm, maybe River might be a good a good one for me to do. So it kind of happened a bit organically because uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, a weird thing to kind of say, how about me for this role? <laughs> 
and you have to make sure you're really pitching it right and you're casting yourself for the right reasons rather than just kind of fancying it I'm hoping that the the success of Karen Piri, the huge success of Karen Piri, has made you more assertive. And I say that, listeners, not to patronise Emo, but because in a This Morning interview, you mentioned that actually going in, even though you are this brilliant young creative mind who had made this, written this incredible show, you were like too shy to ask for a chair to sit on. Yeah, yeah. On the first day, I remember sitting on the pavement with my iPad. I'm just thinking I should ask for a chair but I'm too scared in case they think, who the hell is she? (laughs) (laughs) It also was made kind of worse because it was, we were filming it, you know, during the pandemic and we were all wearing masks. And so I I don't think anyone really knew who I was. I think they just thought I was like a random girl. Yeah, it was was a real learning curve in terms of confidence for me because it was on me to go up to someone and say, hi, I'm the executive producer and writer of this. Um, Can I sit near the monitors? I need to see what's going on. But I found that really difficult. I haven't been on a set, you know, yet uh, again to to test out my new confidence, but I'm pretty sure it would be different this time. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Well deserved. And I love that about Karen Piri, the character. I absolutely just fell in love with her because she is certain of her abilities but not always sure about how to put herself forward and obviously that changes as as it progresses but also I loved is she a maverick no is she tortured by inner demons no is she hard-working funny flawed human yes and she understands what being a woman in a in the world is like right now and I think, yeah. you know, the huge success of it shows how much this kind of show is needed. And, you know, that women watch telly too. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it was always really hard to explain what my version of Karen would be because um, you're trying to illustrate somebody who actually does think that they can do the job deep down, knows that they're smart, mm-hmm. but for some reason can't quite necessarily assert herself even though she's quite a a forceful person and I think a lot of people really relate women really relate to that Um, I always think of my friend Jessie Cave's joke where she says I'm she says something like I'm an amazing mix of unbelievable confidence and sort of crushing insecurity in that I really do believe I'm going to win an Oscar but I can't walk from the bed to the bathroom completely naked in front of a man (laughs) (laughs) and I feel like that always sums something up you know whatever version that is for you everyone has that where it's like I know that I'm capable of incredible things I'm going to change the world but also I really can't do this one small thing in front of me and I think um, if you can kind of get that into a character then you understand them as a real human so that's what I was always trying to do with KP. Well you you nailed it you nailed it. Oh thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Also the addition of the podcast because obviously Val wrote this book 20 years ago oh my god nearly 20 years ago right and podcasts were not a thing but your edition of the true crime podcast leading to the opening of a cold case is not to blow more smoke up your ass. I mean, I think you've, there's a lot there already. I'm fine I'll with keep it. Blowing it. I love it. <laughs> with real genius. Are you a true crime podcast listener? Yes, I am. And well, I'm less so now. I think having a baby slightly cracks you open and makes you, well, not everyone, but for me, made me feel. Uh, like I didn't want the world to be too scary mm. and so I um, have, haven't been able to listen to anything too murdery recently um, but I used <laughs> to be like a real 
true crime listener and I used to listen to them on um, sort of long drives and often I'd be driving from home to wherever I was filming and I'd be arriving sort of late at night to like a sort of you know digs that was empty and dark and I'd be texting my husband saying I think I'm I think there probably is somebody who's going to kill me in there and he'd be like please stop please can you turn off the podcast this is really affecting your real life now um so yeah I wanted to get get one in to the show um to root it in you know the present times but also because it just feels like a really relevant phenomenon we're all kind of listening to them and it would feel weird to do something about cold case without having uh, a podcast element in this day and age the issue with true crime podcasts there's a reason why why we're attracted to them and it's almost like what you've just said there in your head if you listen to that and you're approaching the situation we go through all the things that we would do differently maybe so that it wouldn't be us who is the victim it's kind of the joy of being objective but true crime yeah. podcasts and this idea that, that we've got sort of armchair detectives, citizen detectives who are better than the police. I love that Karen Peary actually blew that open. It's like, yeah, of course, that woman was like really useful. The report, the podcaster was really useful, yeah. but at the same time, a hindrance. And it, it isn't always yeah. helpful. Yeah. And, and I think that's another thing I've, I'm always trying to do with writing, particularly when you're writing a, a show for quite a mainstream channel like ITV or something that you want to reach a really, really big audience, I think you want to examine every kind of argument. And I think that's what I wanted to do around podcasts is really look into, are they are, are they helpful? Are they hindering? And it's all, always, I mean, with any kind of argument, there's always you know, something on both sides which you can kind of pull out. And the beauty of fiction is that you can pull them out in different characters and have them you know, play out in front of you rather than me come down and kind of present a show to you as an argument for something or against something. I, I wanted to show the grey area that that um, we all think we can solve a crime better than the, you know, the protagonist of a crime show or a podcast. Um, and in some ways, maybe, maybe some people can, maybe we can't and you kind of want to be surprising. Um, so yeah, that was another kind of my goals, trying to hold those things at the same time, those ideas about crime uh, fiction and fact, I suppose. <laughs> and you did reach a huge audience, like 6 million, I think, 6.6 million. And that is just phenomenal in this day and age of everyone watching everything on a million channels. So well done. And it means you've got a second series. And so yes. important question, when, when, when can I watch it? When can well, I watch it? <laughs> Well, I'm, I've started, we're on the road. <laughs> uh, there was a slight road bump with me having a baby, uh-huh. but um, it's coming, it's on the way. Um, and Lauren's all, all ready to do it as soon as I get her some scripts. So um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be on screens as soon as we can get it to you. This is very exciting. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So let's talk about the other crime in your life, obsessed with crime, Channel 4's period crime caper, The Curse, which is back for its second series later this month. In case anyone hasn't seen the cracking, very funny first series, could you give us the premise, please? Okay, so it's set in 1984 in East London and a group of uh, idiots, (laughs) (laughs) played by myself. Um, and the guys from People Just Do Nothing and Tom Davis from uh, King Gary and Murder is Successful. Basically, my character Tash, who works in a calf, she convinces her husband, Alba, and her brother, Sydney, and uh, some of their mates to 
do a robbery on a security depot. And when they rob the security depot, instead of robbing the sort of 50K they're expecting, they accidentally stumble across 30 million in gold bullion. And they're just not smart enough or tough enough to get away with a robbery that big. So they are pounced upon by other criminals and the law, and they get themselves into uh, a real mess. Um, And it's a comedy. So whilst there is quite a bit of drama and you know murder uh mostly they're just being total fools <laughs> which i mean i'm about to tell you that i think like tash is clearly the brains of the the yeah. organization the operation and she's also our narrator which i really enjoyed because there are there are three really good female characters there's tash there's mar mctavish and there's the female police officer who's actually better than yeah. the, the male copper at his job yeah. but there's so much resting on tash's your shoulders right yes and that continues into the second series which is about to come out because they go on the run and tash uh kind of starts to feel they might get away with it and she starts getting quite cocky and um she (laughs) she gets them into even deeper trouble by kind of getting involved with corrupt officials and even bigger criminals the really fun thing about the second series is it was quite in the first series because, well, I mean, I think because when you're when you're the smartest one in a room full of idiots, it's harder to be funnier because the funny ones are always going to be the stupidest. Yeah. <laughs> and in the second series, what we've ended up doing is putting her in the room, a room with people who are much smarter than her and much harder than her, and she's the idiot now. So I get to do some really fun stuff um, and uh, loved every minute of it. I've had a little cheeky sneak peek of the first episode of series two and we start off in Spain and I noticed that about Tashi's character straight away like she's she's all like oh I speak Spanish no she doesn't I love that I love that because I think yeah you're clearly having quite a lot of fun with it were you were you actually pregnant when you were filming or is that just part of the storyline oh yes I was very pregnant I was I think I felt I was only like legally allowed to film not legally but I was insured then it wasn't illegal (laughs) I was only insured to film until I was like 35 weeks pregnant and I think I filmed up until the day before I was 35 weeks pregnant so yeah that bump is real and we were out in Gran Canaria um and uh yeah it was an amazing experience totally different from filming in the pandemic I guess like to have that contrast of it all being free and being abroad yeah, and and it was both series are really different for me because the first series I was just getting to know the boys and um, I was in it, but I wasn't in it so much that I didn't have any free time. And uh, we drank so much tequila and we had so much fun. <laughs> and then the second series, I had a lot more to do. Tash has a lot more of the story; she sort of carries the kind of main story while all the boys kind of have these hilarious kind of uh, papers around her and I was really pregnant and so I just spent a lot of time sort of going home and eating crisps by myself instead of partying with the boys but I was happy with that you know (laughs) different moment in my life (laughs) sure sure I mean what I'm gonna say I feel like a real cliche asking it because I think when you watch a comedy that is genuinely very funny you can't help but think that the people involved must have had a blast but also you kind of forget that they were at work you know this is this is work for you and I know so this comes with the caveat that I know that you're a consummate professional But was it hard keeping a straight face around Tom Davis as Mick? Because that voice, man. 
I mean, it's always hard. Actually, with all of them, I, I especially when you have a one-on-one scene with them and you have, because the way that they all work is that, you know, they we write the scripts, because I wrote an episode of this one as well. I wrote episode four. So I was in the writer's room. So we, you know, it's all plotted intricately and every line is thought about. And then when you get to set, it's kind of all thrown up in the air and anything might come out of anyone's mouth. <laughs> and it's so fun to work that way, but it is also so hard when you first hear a new line and the camera's on you and you're just like, I, I, I can't, I can't. Your face starts twitching and you just think, can I just hold it, hold it together just long enough so they can get the shot of my reaction and then fall apart. But there was one day where, um, where Mick is just wearing those speedos that he wears <laughs> and he's just riffing around all the other guys by the pool wearing speedos. And I have to come out and be so angry and sort of bollock them. And he just say, kept saying to me, Tash, Tash, do you want a line of buff? <laughs> I remember I saying, Mick, I'm pregnant. And he lost it and I lost it. And it was just, it was just great times. <laughs> there was a lovely bit there, listeners, where Ema, as she said, it's so much fun. She put her head in her hands and sort of rubbed her temples. <laughs> Yeah, no, and also Sipa uh, Alan, who plays my husband Albert, he like slightly likes to terrorize people. Um, so his idea of fun is kind of um, winding you up while it's on your take, and like he's hilarious and a nightmare. Um, and he won't mind me saying that because I think he'd be quite proud. So yeah, it's it's a real it's a real experience filming with them, and I love it more than anything else in the world, honestly. Oh, it listens, if you haven't watched it, it's such a joy. I binge watched the whole first series, which was a great way to watch it. I felt very much yeah. back in the 1980s. It was brilliant. Ema, what else are you up to apart from, you know, keeping a tiny human alive and writing the second season of Karen Piri for me? Uh, what else are you up to? <laughs> I am, I, I've got another project that I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about and, and plotting out, which is, something that I will hopefully write and lead act in as well because I kind of want to bring those two sides of my work together properly because I've been doing both of them alongside each other for you know 15 years now Um, and you know I I acted a little bit in Karen Puri and I'm writing a little bit on the curse but I think it's time that I sort of put my cards on the table and say this is this is what I'm about so that's my next big project. And I, I can't say anything about it yet because I actually am not sure quite what it's about. But um, it's sort of, I like blending genres and doing surprising stuff, you know, comedy meets drama, but also sort of thriller meets rom-com kind of, you know, where you, I think it's happening a lot more these days, you mm. know, with things like Succession or, you know, The Flight Attendant or... Um, I loved Severance, which was such a, you know, a, a kind of quite bleak, serious drama, but had like amazing moments of comedy. I think you could tell there, were, there was a comedic brain like Ben Stiller behind moments of it. So I want to kind of capture that, the sort of in-betweenness of those kind of shows um, in the next thing. And and I want to be really ambitious with it um, and do something quite big. So um, that's that's the other thing that I'm kind of plotting alongside Karen Peary and you know hopefully more of the curse in the future because we've got more stories to tell um and then yeah the tiny human (laughs) I guess (laughs) 
Oh, well, I'm very excited. You threw some big old series titles into the ring there, but, you know, I have absolute <laughs> faith that you can totally match them, so I'm excited to see what you do. Where can people keep an eye on what you're up to on the socials? I'm on Instagram, Miss Ema Kenny, and on Twitter, Miss Ema Kenny. Um, and, yeah, I'll put it all up there. More Ema Kenny, please. That's basically what I brought you onto the podcast request. More Ema Kenny, please. <laughs> Oh, that's so nice. And I'll try my best as fast as I can. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure apart from all of the pressure. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you so much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we sprint past the bunch to the finish line as we discuss all things women's sports. I'm going to start today with a little bit of tennis news. It's bad luck to the Great British team who missed out on a place in the Billie Jean King Cup finals after Harriet Dart was beaten 6-1, 6-7, 6-1 by Caroline Garcia of France. There are 12 teams in the finals, so that's not great. And it means that we'll now have to contest a playoff in order to compete in next year's tournament. Clearly, this says a lot about how missed Emma Raducanu was from that team. Raducanu is competing at the Stuttgart Open today, as in Tuesday as I record, against Yelena Ostapenko. Nice easy start for her then, lads. I'm being sarcastic. It isn't. In further tennis news, you might remember the case of Peng Shui, the Chinese tennis player who mysteriously disappeared after publicly accusing a high-ranking Chinese official, Chang Gaoli, of sexually assaulting her. Since November 2021, concerns for her safety have been raised on a number of occasions and every now and again, Shui has been sort of paraded by officials at events like the Olympics and the odd video of her saying she is totes fine has been released. However, Kai Ong, a China researcher for Amnesty International, says that there's still no independently verifiable evidence that can prove Peng Shui is truly safe and free. At the point that concerns were raised, the WTA announced a boycott of events held in the country pending a full, fair and transparent investigation into the alleged incident. No such investigation has taken place. Regardless, the WTA has announced it will call an end to its boycott, with Chief Exec Steve Simon telling BBC Sport, we've been in this for 16 months and we are convinced at this point that our requests will not be met. To continue with this strategy doesn't make any sense and a different approach is needed. Hopefully by returning, more progress can be made. I mean, I don't want to piss on anyone's picnic, but that does seem to me to be an unlikely outcome. But there we go. Hopefully I'll be proved wrong on this. Okay, so look, I know I spend almost every Jenny Off The Block segment talking about how things haven't moved on at the pace I'd have liked in women's sport, but I just want to mention football briefly again because I noticed this week that I'm starting to see women's football stories on news homepages. Specifically, I saw a story about the Chelsea women's team on the BBC News homepage last weekend and I thought, okay, that's interesting. I don't remember seeing this outside of big international results or sort of issue-based stories. At the same time, Arsenal announced this week that they've sold more than 42,000 tickets for the home leg of their Champions League semi-final against Wolfsburg at the Emirates Stadium on May the 1st. Compare that to 10 years ago for the very same fixture... Lads, they'd sold 1,406 tickets. I know I'm preaching to the choir and I don't want to sound smug, but, you know, you can't fill stadiums if you can't play in stadiums. Now, look, this is women's sport, so naturally I have bad news as well. And actually, this news is 
a couple of weeks old, but I've only just read about it and I think it warrants highlighting. Interested to know if other people saw this story. It doesn't seem to have been widely reported on outside of cycling news outlets, though the BBC and The Guardian did cover it. That news is that this year's women's tour has been cancelled or postponed due to a lack of funds. Organisers say it will be back in 2024, by which point I guess they're hoping to have found the money, but I think it's a bit of a stretch to call that a postponement, as they have done. Concerns were first raised about the event earlier in the year, and the organisers called for urgent sponsorship after finding a £500,000 shortfall in funding. A crowdfunder was started at the same time, which raised £18,000, but the race organisers are still £400,000 short. What an utterly miserable predicament. The organisers have now said that due to increased running costs and a reduced level of commercial support, they've had to cancel the event. This is a prestigious event and it's been going since 2014. Women's cycling was one of the big success stories of the 2012 Olympics. So this is really depressing to see. You know, there are a lot of big names in terms of female athletes, not just cyclists. So I do hope that it's not going to be a continuing trend where money is a bit tighter. That's all for me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to What Was Mickey's Mum Thinking? Hannah, which film that we watched this week reveals that what men really want is cutting-edge choreography and strobe lighting? <laughs> yes. Well, this week we watched 1983's Flashdance. Sorry, give me one second. Taking me bra off. <laughs> Whoa! I'm not going to be able to concentrate on anything. My commitment else. to visual gag on a podcast is extraordinary. Because I know you so well, I did actually confidently predict that, Mickey, you will have seen this film many, many times. And that, Jen, you would never have seen it at all. Am I right? I have not. Wow. So many times. Right. So many times. It's almost like I listened to the end of last week's podcast. <laughs> I am somewhere in the middle of you two, having seen it twice, both of which I would say I was probably about 13. Mick, obviously holding fire on your current opinion, given that you've watched it so much, did you like it then? I fucking loved it. I was obsessed with it. I wanted to be Jennifer Beals. I wanted to be a welder by day, a dancer by night. I'd still quite like to look like her. She's amazing. <laughs> I think it gave me expectations that could never be met. I watched it at least twice a week for about a year. My granddad taped it off the telly for me when I must have been <sighs> about nine or ten. And apparently not one member of my extended family or indeed my mum thought... Should our 10-year-old be watching this on repeat? <laughs> I know my mum was, you know, a very busy single mum. And maybe her attitude was, be quiet, look at these tits. I don't know. So, directed by Adrian Lynn from a script by Thomas Headley and Joe Esterhaus, it was the first production partnership between Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. Between them, Lynn, Esterhaus, Simpson and Bruckheimer went on to give us Coyote Ugly, Nine and a half weeks and showgirls. These guys understand women, right? <laughs> <laughs> Flashdance was inspired by the real-life story of Maureen Marder, who worked on a construction site in the day and a Toronto strip club at night while dreaming of entering a prestigious dance school. Marder was paid $2,300 to use her story, and when the film went on to gross more than $200 million worldwide, she bought a court case asking for a larger share of the profits. 
she lost. Jennifer Beals was cast in the main role after, well, let's take a look at the two anecdotes surrounding her. According to Esther House, then Paramount director Michael Eisner, quote, asked 200 of the most macho men on the Paramount lot, I want to know which one of these three young women you most want to fuck. Bills was the one they chose and was, checks notes, 17 at the time. Eisner himself claims the process was different. Well, he would, wouldn't he? Although, <laughs> yeah. uh, although he does it in an arguably equally as sexist way, as he claims he, quote, asked women's secretaries at the studio to select their favourite after viewing screen tests. Women secretaries. I'm guessing that was all of them, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's not really covered himself in glory with that alternative explanation, has he? <laughs> Bills was cast, although her dance sequences were shot using body doubles, mostly Maureen Yahan, who was uncredited. The breakdancing bits were done by the male dancer, Crazy Legs, and boy, can you see that if you actually look at it quite closely. (laughs) (laughs) Flashdance is one of those films that's probably more famous for its soundtrack than its plot. Compiled by Giorgio Moroda, it resulted in a number of hits, including Maniac and Flashdance, What a Feeling, which was written by Moroda with lyrics by Keith Forsey and its singer Irene Cara. It won the Oscar for Best Original Song, as well as a Golden Globe and a Grammy and reached number one in the US. The closing number, when our heroine Alex auditions for a dance school, has been the subject of many homages and parodies, including by Robert Webb during Comic Relief, Jade Adams during Strictly, and Jennifer Lopez in her music video, I'm Glad, although that one ended in court with Sony agreeing to pay a licensing fee to Paramount for the use of dance routines and other story material. I also discovered that there is an animated special by Snoopy, yeah, I know. <laughs> Which is sort of based on the fact that this sort of film was quite popular at the time. Obviously, there have been Saturday Night Favour, Flashdance and Footloose. It is called, and I shit you not, Flesh Beagle. <laughs> I think Which you can buy those on the internet if you're a lonely man. Singly <laughs> the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. Snoopy's already got an iconic dance, though. Yeah. Let's get to the plot. Alex, our heroine, has moved from Altoona, Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh to follow her dream of becoming a dancer. She works as a welder by day and at night in a club where people pay ladies to dance with their clothes on. (laughs) I know! (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) She's somehow also got time to practice dancing, look after a dog, find an elderly mentor and start a romantic relationship. She's also 18. None of this makes any sense (laughs) one night nick the guy who owns the steel mill who is twice her age and divorced walks into the club where ladies dance with their clothes on spots alex and (laughs) decided to ask her out at work totes professional right no power play there he woos her by taking her around some abandoned industrial sites and they have screaming rows in front of colleagues again Totally professional. Why is Alex being like this, Nick wonders? I don't know, mate. Maybe because she's 18. (laughs) Meanwhile, one of Alex's friends decides to move to California to pursue his dream of being a xenophobic stand-up comedian. Oh, my God. 
leading his girlfriend, Jeannie, to take the quickest spiral into drugs (laughs) ever captured on celluloid (laughs) and started working in a club where ladies dance with their clothes off. (gasps) Nick gets Alex an audition at a fancy dance school, which makes her furious, rightly so, but eventually she concedes, does a flash dance, gets in and runs outside to meet Nick because what every young woman needs when she is starting the next exciting stage of her life is to be tied to a boring bastard 20 years older than her. (laughs) The end. Wow, where to start? Critics did not like this and they basically said it was a number of music videos strung together by an incredibly poor plot. But I mean, what's not to like about that? (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more wrong with it than that, isn't there? Like the scant regard for employment law, just as a start of a ten. There's a bit where she's welding and she's wearing what looks like a poker visor. It's like, that is, it's going to melt. Yeah. Health and safety. When they watch Flash Dance in an attempt to learn to dance in The Full Monty, they criticise her welding skills. That is true. That is true. Of course they do. I Fucking don't know if she hell. had a welding double. It's the 80s in a film, isn't it, though? Isn't it? It's just, it's like, what era is this from? Oh, what era could this be from? The 80s. Every scene screams, the 80s. It's the 80s. <laughs> I do remember that taking your bra off in that fashion being a thing that many people I know mm. including myself attempted to do but when you've got really big tits it's really hard that's how I take a what? bra off I quite often do that now watching it again recently very recently for the first time in a long time and just to put this into context I have considered choosing this film for flicking but with the very <laughs> much nostalgia will it stand up and going in with that caveat because I loved it so hard I watched it so much but yeah, I will still, that's how I take my bra off. There's so many things that I felt were aspirational for me in that film then and uh, not so much now. That warehouse she lives in though, that's cool, right? Yeah. I've been on holiday for, <laughs> for five days with my nephew and before that I had my mum stay for three days and I value time by myself a lot. And so I watched this on the Thursday night as we finished work and it was the last time I was going to be by myself for nearly a fortnight and I fucking loved watching it I had a lovely time (laughs) I genuinely had a smashing time even though it's a terrible film Jen oh yeah I mean the same I messaged Mickey as I was watching it (laughs) I think I said something about his dubious um, methods as an employer and that I was having a lovely time, but also that I couldn't believe how hairy his hands were. Oh, creepy um, McFurry wrists. <laughs> <laughs> the hairiest hands I've ever seen. I had a great time. I thought it was like absolutely delightful. I mean, there's so much wrong with it. So much wrong with it. Funnily enough, I had bumped into, the night before I watched it, I had bumped into friend of the podcast, Aisha Hazarika at the mm-hmm. theatre. She was like, "Do you still do that thing, rated or dated?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, we do." I said, "We've got, uh, we've got Flash Dance next week," and she went, "Oh my god, Flash Dance! Oh, oh, I was just thinking about this the other day. There's this bit where she's got like the lobster and she's sucking the lobster <laughs> yeah. and she's doing it in this like sexy way, and she looks so young <laughs> and he looks so old." Story. <laughs> and it is, and I was just like, I hadn't watched it at this point. I was like. Do people think that's a sexy thing to do to a lobster? <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot wrong with it, but I had a lovely time. <laughs> Can I just say, because obviously, as listeners of the podcast will know, I used to work on Lads Max. And so, you know, 
kind of was what would be termed a cool girl. Like I thought that's how I had to be. I had to be cool with everything. You know, the 90s, growing up in the 90s, I cannot tell you how hugely disappointed I was the first time I went to a strip club. I'm like, where are the flashy sets? Where is the choreography? Where are the angles for the film crew? Why have they got their tits out? This is very confusing. Where are the ladies dancing with their clothes on? Yeah. Really aggressive dancing. So many of those routines are so aggressive, like Maniac. Going on a mat, sorry, Maniac's hurt the training montage, which I still have in my head when I'm going running, just to let you know. Like I said, it's been very influential on me, this (laughs) film. I still sometimes do the little jog on the spot and shake my head to get the sweat off my hair. Uh, But yeah, I'm going on a manhunt. It's really aggressive. Then she sort of fits in strobe lighting, the one that Alex does about imagination, where she's just dressed as the 80s. Some of those dances are like, I would say, considering this is like a a working man's club at a steel mill Mm. in Pittsburgh, Mm. like... They are very editorial, some of those. It's, some of those it's pieces. Contemporary dance, like isn't the it? costumes, the choreography. You're just like, I don't think they would have come here to see this. I just, I just don't think they There's would. There's a brilliant focus on, because the bar's called Morby's, and it's run by Jake Morby, uh, who is a, a fat Pittsburgh man with a moustache. That's all you need to know about him. He runs this bar. He's clearly loves the dancing. <laughs> but there's a bit where the strobe lights come on and he does a real like ugh, wincing face. And you're like, yeah, you should be like that at every time one of your dancers comes on stage because no one knows why the fuck they're doing this for this crowd. But yeah. the crowd are loving it. They're absolutely wanting them to keep their leotards on. I don't understand. Should we talk about what a creepy fuck Nick is? <laughs> like, just following her home, you know, all of that stuff. I was so surprised you didn't mention that in the plot as one of his wooing methods, is to just follow her home in the dark, in the rain, in his car while she's on her bike. Uh, no, please leave forever. Yeah. He's 20 years older than her and he's her boss and he, like, asks her out at work. I know you've said all of this already, Hannah, but... <laughs> oh, no, bears like, repeating, Jen. This is what? what is this? And also, when she... So what I do still love about this film, and, uh, you know, with the caveat that for me, it was very much like putting on an old, comfortable, jizz-stained coat. But it was like, it's her agency. She has quite a lot of agency. She turns him yeah. down several times. The reason they have that the huge row at the end is because he has gone over her head to get her this interview. But yeah, she turns him down loads. And the way he gets her to go out with him is tell her she's fired. Yeah. No. (laughs) Just no. I thought there were two things about this that were actually like genuinely good. And one of them was that she has agency. And the other thing that I thought was interesting is that both Jennifer Beals and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but creepy grandpa Nick. Michael (laughs) Murray. Like they are both played by mixed actors hmm. and it's not a plot device it's just like that's that's just what what it is and it doesn't get mentioned and it's not a yeah thing. i think it's it's one I of that was interesting it's one of many reasons that alex feels othered when she goes into the dance school to ask for the application forms right she looks so different to everyone there but the focus is on how she's dressed yeah they're like the industrial nature of her world comfortable shoes <laughs> what the fuck are the others wearing i would say they both do pass though don't they yes no they absolutely do but so perhaps I they were trying not that, to point like, out to america that this is a film that's got mixed race people in it perhaps they were just hoping people didn't notice i think that is entirely possible 
to be fair. But I did I did think, oh, that's interesting for that sort of time he, as well. Particularly. He's not particularly fit, given all his givens, is he? I mean, I hate to be one of those people, but at least if he'd been played by someone handsome, you might think, OK, I can see what she sees in him. I don't think he's I not think handsome. I think he's unhandsome. He's just very, very hairy. Mm. Yeah, he'd be very warm for a cuddle, wouldn't he? (laughs) In that warehouse, that's I mean, it's going to be drafty. A radiator's just bust, he'd be very cozy. (laughs) Aren't you going to stay for some pizza? (laughs) Oh, oh, it's so cringy. The dialogue is so cringy, it is so male gaze. The big question I had while watching this film was. Who is it for? Who is this film for? And I know that is a classic Hannah Dunleavy question. But I'm like, apart from nine-year-old me, clearly be quiet and watch these tits or not tits or just like suggestion of tits. Who is it for? Because it's, it's actually a real, it's got some female empowerment in the plot. Alex has agency. Follow your dreams, no matter what the obstacles are. It's very like teenage girls would love Mm. this. But it is so male gazy. Yeah, but I think I men think want to see... 100% for women. Men want more tits, so I think it is for women. I think it's 100% for young women. It's meant to be aspirational. Yeah. That's what that is. I think it's meant to be like the lipstick advert that I always make reference to. That lipstick's supposed to be for me. Why is it being advertised by like a woman who looks like she wants to be fucked? Like, wh- why? I don't understand that. Yeah, I agree with Jen on this. But I think it's... A- a good question. <laughs> it's not an unreasonable question. <laughs> they want all 18-year-old girls to look at 38-year-old men as a prospect. How it, old was Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer when they made this? Around the 38-year-old exactly mark. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. It is bonkers, isn't it? And where did Hannah come from? Where did she meet her? Because Alex says at one point, the first time you took me to the ballet, when she was little. So she's clearly known her a long time. Maybe that's the reason she's moved to Pittsburgh, to be closer to Hannah. But then no one rings her when she died. That's so rude. That woman is so brutal. She must have seen that Alex goes there like at least once a week on a bike. She's quite noticeable because she's a beautiful woman in industrial clothing on a bike with a knapsack. Like, (laughs) you'd notice her. Oh, she is a beautiful woman. Oh, she's so gorgeous. And she looks exactly the same now, even though she's nearly 60. I still want to be her. I still want to be her. This is what I came away from that film thinking. See, so it works. It's problematic, but I still want to be her. (laughs) Even less chance now, though, in fairness. (laughs) Can we just touch on how terrible Richie is and how that has not dated well at all? How was that even in the first place? I was like, is... Is he Polish? Is it like, is that the stick that he's making fun of himself rather than punching down? No, no, just pure punching down, pure xenophobia. Polish jokes are the 1980s equivalent in America of Irish jokes Mm. here. Yeah. Not a defence of them, but it makes me laugh that he got like one five minute slot in which he told four jokes that weren't his and then off to California. I was like, wow, that's really optimistic. You haven't even... You haven't even done a laughing horse gig yet, mate. <laughs> You've not entered So You Think You're Funny. Come on, calm the fuck yeah. down. There's a bit, again, I know it sounds mad having 
known that you both recently watched this, but this was so influential for me as a child and as a, <laughs> a young adult. And there's a bit where one of the dancers, the one who does going on a manhunt, and she's really athletic. And the first thing she does, as with all strip clubs, is run at a wall and do a backflip off it because that's what men want to see, obviously. But she's like, oh, he's not going to call me. He's not called me. And they're like, mm. no, he'll call. And they're like, oh, but will he call? He'll call. And she's like, he'll call. And then when he turns up and she goes, he called. And he's like, he's like Sixty. Mm. If he's a day, this little squat, <laughs> <Yeah>. bald pensioner. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, Jeannie's descent, I've never seen anything like it. It happens over about two days. I think the most important message we can take from Flashdance, and there are, there are many important messages yeah. that we can take from Flashdance, not least that we know that from the beginning of recording this, Hannah is braless, and I've been very excited. Is <laughs> um, <laughs> the dance is everywhere. You just need to look for it. We're surrounded by dance at all times and we just maybe need to open our hearts to dance. Guys? For real. How did that go for you the other day, Mick? I've hurt my knee, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a sore knee and aspirations that I shall never reach. Yeah. So, difficult question ahead, I know. We can all agree that we loved watching it, but rated or dated? Spectacularly dated. <laughs> Spectacularly dated. Oh, yeah. I had such a lovely time. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Oh, God. Oh, just, oh, fuck it. Rated. Rated. Still love it. Still love it. It's so problematic, but she's got agency and she can move. Yeah, I'm with Jen on this. I think it is dated. <laughs> like I say, despite the fact that I had quite a delightful... Banging had, soundtrack. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, Incredible agreed. 80s yeah. tunes. Yeah. But dated. Come on, guy. Come on. Come on. (laughs) Okay, what's next? Oh, it's me, isn't it? I can't offer you such a delightful experience, I'm afraid. But I can offer you Gwyneth Paltrow. So next week we will be watching Sliding Doors. It's got that bloke in it who looks like Eric Cantona. (laughs) John Hannah? No, not John Hannah. (laughs) A different bloke. Trust me. Standard issue for all women.